Good morning. Welcome to NTD. Good morning. Here are our top stories. A win and two losses for former President Trump. The Supreme Court agrees to hear his immunity claim, but he'll have to pay a nearly half billion dollar fine without delay as Illinois becomes the third state to kick the national frontrunner for the GOP nomination off the ballot. A split-screen moment at the border. President Biden and former President Trump set to target each other today in Texas. How their backdrops could vastly differ and what locals there are telling NTD about the dueling visits. Over a million acres burned. Communities struggle as wildfires devastate the Texas panhandle. Will the weekend weather soothe the flames? What emergency officials are saying? Congressional leaders agree on a short-term funding extension, potentially averting a partial government shutdown. A congressman joins us to discuss the timeline for a vote on the stopgap measure. More fallout from the Alabama embryo ruling. Why a senator from Mississippi is crying foul on a bill to protect in vitro fertilization and trying to block it. New York City Mayor Eric Adams is calling for big changes to the city's sanctuary laws after a string of violent crimes committed by illegal immigrants. We speak to the field office director for ICE in New York for his take on the situation. Personal trauma turned into an opportunity for healing. One woman's incredible story of how she's using her passion to help others struggling with mental health. This is NTD Good Morning. Live from our global headquarters, here are Evelyn Lee and Kevin Hogan. Welcome to NTD. Good morning, everyone. Today is Thursday, February 29th. Yeah, and it is leap year. But by the way, President Trump seems like he's a little bit confident that the Supreme Court is going to side with him over that ballot challenge in Illinois. All right. And in Illinois, you know, the, the ballot, some ballots already have Trump's, uh, mail-in ballots already have Trump's name on it. Yeah, that's a good point. Actually, it puts the state in a position, if the order's not reversed, to have to potentially not count ballots cast for him. Imagine the public backlash there. Yeah, and that brings us to, uh, to today's top news. An Illinois judge barred former President Trump from the state's GOP primary ballot yesterday over his alleged role in the January 6th Capitol breach. Cook County Circuit Judge Tracy Porter sided with Illinois voters who argued Trump should be disqualified from the state's primary and the state's November 5th general election ballot. That was over her interpretation of the insurrection clause of the Constitution's 14th Amendment. The judge delayed her ruling from taking effect due to expected appeal. The Trump campaign stated it would quickly appeal what it called an unconstitutional ruling. The final outcome of the case will most likely be decided by the U.S. Supreme Court. The high court heard arguments on the former president's ballot eligibility earlier this month. The group Free Speech for People spearheaded the Illinois disqualification effort. Illinois is now the third state to remove Trump from its primary ballot after Colorado and Maine. Both of those decisions are also on hold while Trump appeals. And the Supreme Court has decided to rule on Trump's presidential immunity claim in his federal election case, further delaying a trial. The court expedited the case yesterday and will hear arguments at the end of April. A lower court ruling against Trump was put on hold until the matter is decided. 
District Judge Tanya Chutkin already postponed the first trial date. That was originally set to start next week. A trial is not likely to start until at least May or even after the November general election due to appeals. The decision marks the second time that justices have rejected a request from special counsel Jack Smith. The court previously denied Smith's request to quickly take up the case before the D.C. Circuit decided it. The court asked Trump to file opening arguments by March 19th. Smith's office was asked to file its own arguments by next Friday. Trump has until the second week in April to submit his written final arguments before oral arguments are held. The high court waited close to two weeks to issue a ruling on how it would proceed. Trump praised the decision on Truth Social. He posted, a president will not be able to properly function or make decisions without presidential immunity. He stated it could actually lead to extortion and blackmail of a president. For a roundup of Trump's legal cases, including ballot challenges, his claim to presidential immunity, and his civil fraud fine, we hear from Paul Kaminar, the lead counsel at the National Legal and Policy Center. Good morning, Paul. Do you think that Judge Tracy Porter has the actual authority in Illinois to prevent a former president from appearing on the ballot? Well, she has the authority to issue the ruling, uh, but the question is whether that ruling is uh, illegal or constitutional. And it's clearly it's not. Uh, she's just trying to jump on board. She's a liberal Democratic judge. You know, after all, she's from uh, Cook County, Chicago, where their motto is vote early and often. Uh, so I'm not surprised that she tried to jump on the bandwagon here, knowing full well that the Supreme Court's going to rule shortly. And the uh, hearing went, I was there at the Supreme Court uh, hearing, and it went very well for Trump. So, uh, you know, this is really going to go down the tubes along with Maine and Colorado. Yeah, and a lot of that actual decision came down to whether or not the court actually had jurisdiction over the matter to begin with. So what's likely to happen here over the Illinois ballot? Will Trump appeal to an appellate court in Illinois, or will just a Supreme Court decision ultimately take precedent over this? Well, uh, it's being appealed to the uh, appellate court in Illinois, but uh, uh, the judge is basically putting this on hold. But uh, she also ordered that, uh, as you said, uh, ballots have been cast, and she said if there's any uh, votes for Trump, they have to be suppressed, is her word. Oh, so you're suppressing the vote here? So it's clear what's going on here. So uh, this is being appealed, and I have no doubt that her decision will be reversed. Very unique that that word suppressed was actually used. The Supreme Court is hearing Trump's immunity appeal in his election case with arguments set for late April. It's unclear if the trial is going to happen before the election, but let's just say it takes a few weeks to hear the appeal, the arguments there. Judge Chutkin said he might give, she might give about three months to prep time before the trial, and then if the trial takes a few months, that could put the trial actually right when the election is taking place. So what implications would that have on who the future president will be? Yeah, well, that's assuming that he loses the Supreme Court argument. Uh, he may win that. Uh, it's a tough case, but in any event, even if he loses it, uh, as you said, there will be time uh, after they hear the case, April 22nd, for them to decide it. I predict they'll decide it the last day of their session, which is the end of June. And then there's, you know, like three months that the judge check and gave uh, to to have uh, pretrial other motions heard. So you're running right into uh, the election and it's clearly election interference. So I can't see uh, how this will uh, come down this trial uh, before 
uh, the election, and it's clearly interfering with it. And by the way, uh, tomorrow is the hearing in the Florida case for scheduling uh, uh, pretrial matters. And one of the motions they have pending is his immunity. So don't be surprised if the judge there is asked, hey, put, put your case on hold too, because this issue is going before the Supreme Court. Very interesting, Paul. We have a few seconds here. Appeals Court has ruled that Trump has to come up with the full $454 million penalty while he appeals in New York over the civil fraud ruling. What could happen there? Will Trump post cash or is he going to get a loan? Yeah, he, he will maybe do both. He'll post cash and, and, and he may get a loan. The court has uh, already authorized that he has uh, now authority to get at least $100 million uh, in a loan because they originally the order said you can't even borrow money uh, or do business in New York. So they kind of put a little pause on that. So he'll be posting the money one way or the other to get this case overturned. Well, thank you so much for weighing in on this. Paul Kaminar, lead counsel at the National Legal and Policy Center. Thank you. Hunter Biden appeared for a closed-door interview with lawmakers on Capitol Hill yesterday in the impeachment probe into President Biden. The first son told a House panel his father was never involved in his business and that its investigation is a house of cards built on lies. He acknowledged his addictions and said he's trying to make amends, stating his mistakes were his own and not his father's. House Oversight Chair James Comer says the probe into Biden family business dealings will go on as long as new information keeps coming in. Comer says the next phase will be a public hearing and that he plans to issue a final report. Entity's Jeremy Sandberg has reactions to the private hearing. Hunter Biden testified Wednesday his father has never had any involvement or any direct or indirect financial interest in various business ventures during his 50-year career, calling the investigation a baseless and destructive political charade. He accused Republicans in his opening statement of hunting him for over a year in a, quote, partisan political pursuit of my dad. Hunter Biden's attorney, Abby Lowell, said the Republican majority ended the day where they started and accused Republicans of spending more time focusing on his client's addiction than anything related to an impeachment probe. They have produced no evidence that would do anything to support the notion that there was any financial transactions that involved Hunter with his father, period. House Oversight member Pat Fallon shared his take on the hearing with NTD. He said Jim Biden gave his dad $200,000 as a loan repayment. Okay, then why hasn't your father simply produced the original check or wire that he sent to, to, to his brother? He hasn't. I don't think it ever existed. But it's things like that. So I think the natural progression will be a public hearing. Congressman Dan Goldman says Hunter Biden gave detailed and clear explanations about his transactions from foreign business dealings. He went through a laundry list of board seats and jobs that he has had over his 30-year career after he left Yale Law School. And he withstood uh, some inappropriate attacks even in the first hour. The White House says the impeachment probe is a stunt that has dragged on for months. It's uncovered zero evidence uh, of wrongdoing by President Biden. Good morning. House Oversight Chair James Comer said the deposition was great and backed several bits of evidence. Our committees have unearthed substantial evidence of President Biden and his family's corruption. The Bidens created 20 shell companies, most of which were created when Joe Biden was vice president. The chairman says an investigation into President Biden will continue as long as new information keeps coming in, but that he's ready to try to start closing the probe. Comer says he plans to issue a final report with the impeachment inquiry moving into its next phase, a public hearing with Hunter Biden.
He says a transcript of Wednesday's closed-door interview should be out in a few days. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. Facing off at the border, Biden and Trump both visiting Texas today, but making very different cases about the border crisis. What's on the two's agenda and what locals are telling NTD about their expectations, NTD's White House correspondent Iris Tao is in Brownsville, Texas. Good morning to you, Evelyn. Both Biden and Trump are set to appear in a border town in Texas today with Trump and Eagle Pass and Biden right here in Brownsville. While Trump is expected to highlight a record number of illegal immigrants coming into the U.S. and blame it on Biden's policies, and President Biden will seek to turn the border issue around on Trump by emphasizing that Trump is the one who is voicing opposition to a border deal in Congress and thus preventing progress to be made. Here's what the White House was saying on Wednesday. And the president will also uh, deliver remarks uh, to highlight the need for Congress to pass the bipartisan border security agreement. Uh, Republicans have rejected that because of politics. And we talked to some locals here in Brownsville about President Biden's visit today. And some voters who voted for Biden in the early primary here and told us this. Do you think it's going to help solve the ongoing border crisis here? I don't think it will. I'm going to be very honest. He's not doing what he's supposed to be doing. It doesn't mean I'm not going to vote for him, but I am very disappointed at him. Biden coming down, it's a good thing. Hopefully it's not just a political stunt. It's not, I'm not a big supporter of Trump. His is a political stunt. Meanwhile, some others who voted for Republicans said this to us. He's already had four years to work on the situation here on the border, and he hasn't done anything. So I'm not quite sure why he's coming unless it's just for the vote. He's the person that caused all the issues that are happening right now at the border, and I don't see a point in him coming. Well, I'm hoping Trump gets reelected. Both Biden and Trump are giving speeches during their visits, though perhaps with a very different backdrop. Brownsville, where Biden will be, has a lot fewer illegal immigrants coming in compared with Eagle Pass, where Trump will be. Biden already didn't appear to see any migrants during his last visit to the border back in January 2023. So a big thing to watch for today is whether he's going to see any migrants this time around. Back to you, Evelyn. Thank you very much, Iris. And we're staying in Texas. Wildfires are spreading across the Texas panhandle, charring more than a million acres. Authorities say the Smokehouse Creek fire alone has already scorched more than 850,000 acres since it ignited Monday afternoon. And today's Daniel Monahan has more on what is now the second largest fire the Lone Star State has ever seen. Some residents have been forced to evacuate. At least one death is confirmed in Hutchinson County, Texas. 83-year-old grandmother Joyce Blankenship from the town of Stinnett. Drone footage shows Stinnett with its neighborhoods ravaged by the fires. Richard Murray's house burned to the ground. We basically have lost everything. This is the only pair of pants I've got. The shirt, that's it. This building in the town of Canadian was completely destroyed by the wildfires. People and even some of their animals took shelter in a church in Fritch, Texas. Children's pastor Courtney Kirksey says they had over 50 people come through. But we had animals here too. We had goats and horses and rabbits really? and cats and dogs. Wow. <laughs> here a vehicle drives through the raging wildfire, soon overtaken by smoke as the flames get too close for comfort. Drone footage shows burned grassland and smoke in Roberts County, north of Pampa. 
Chief of the Texas Division of Emergency Management, Nim Kidd, says adverse weather on Friday and the weekend could make containing the fires a challenge. I don't want the community there to feel a false sense of security that all of these fires will not grow anymore. This is still a very dynamic situation. The largest fire recorded in Texas history was the 2006 East Amarillo Complex fire, which burned about 1,400 square miles and resulted in 13 deaths. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. Coming up, congressional leaders reach a last-minute deal to prevent a government shutdown ahead of a Friday deadline. Representative Bob Good joins us live with more on this. Senator Mitch McConnell announcing his retirement as leader of the Senate GOP. What led to the unexpected departure and what's next for Republicans? And a bill guaranteeing access to in vitro fertilization fails in the Senate. Why a Republican senator blocked it despite being supportive of the treatment after the break. Welcome back. On Capitol Hill, Democratic and Republican leaders in Congress have reached a deal to potentially avoid a government shutdown this weekend. This could bring relief, at least temporarily, for several federal departments. Thanks for all being here. Look. Congressional leaders struck a deal Wednesday to advance some of the bills funding the federal government, as well as a stopgap measure to prevent partial government shutdown. The deadline was Friday night. The pact was announced in a joint statement by House Speaker Mike Johnson, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, House Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries, and other top lawmakers. It would extend government funding and allow the federal government to operate normally until lawmakers finish debating funding for the rest of the year. This is uh, for the process to allow us to honor the rules and not jam people with a large piece of legislation they haven't had a chance to review. Johnson confirmed the lower chamber will take a vote Thursday on the stopgap measure to avert a partial shutdown until March 8th. The deal would put six of the 12 funding bills on a path to passage by March 8th, with the remainder by March 22nd. Roughly 20% of federal government funding hangs in the balance. Departments impacted would include transportation, housing, veteran affairs, agriculture and energy. Almost two months ago, Johnson and Schumer agreed on a close to $1.6 trillion spending budget, but House Republicans rejected the deal and demanded cuts. Republicans' razor-thin majority thinned further, with Democrat Tom Swayze's election to the seat left vacant by George Santos. In the Senate, both parties' leaders will now explain the new deal to their rank and file, with the aim of convincing enough of them to back the arrangement. After spending 17 years at the helm, Senator Mitch McConnell yesterday announced he'll step down as Senate GOP leader in November. The 82-year-old Kentucky Republican is the longest-serving party leader in Congress's upper chamber. One of life's most underappreciated talents is to know when it's time to move on to life's next chapter. So I stand before you today, Mr. President, and my colleagues to say this will be my last term as Republican leader of the Senate. McConnell said he plans on serving out the rest of his term as senator, which ends in January 2027. He added that it's been a difficult time for his family, his wife recently losing her younger sister in a car accident. McConnell noted he will allow the next generation of leadership to fill his role. 
The Kentucky senator did not specify the reason for his departure, but his health condition came into the spotlight after he froze up during two separate press conferences last year. And joining us now is Congressman Bob Good of Virginia to discuss the partial government shutdown deadline and Senator Mitch McConnell stepping down as minority leader. Congressman Good, thank you for your time this morning. Will there be a vote today in the House on this stopgap measure that will keep these government agencies funded into March and the two deadlines that is likely to pass? It seems so. Uh, unfortunately, what you're going to see is an extension of the Biden-Pelosi-Schumer policies that are still in place from when they lost control of government, at least in the Republican House, uh, in November of 22. And then they passed this huge omnibus spending bill, this $1.6 trillion spending bill. And all of that has been kept in place for the last uh, 15 months or so since Republicans have had control. You're going to see an extension of that today. What we ought to be doing is cutting our spending, securing our border, and not continuing to fund this government uh, with the very policies that we campaigned against, that we've run against, that are destroying the country. So, Congressman Good, I would imagine that that's some of what your constituents are saying. What are they telling you about all this? Well, a government shutdown is not the worst thing. The worst thing is actually perpetuating the harm that's been being done to the pe American people by this Congress. Uh, they, the suspending is unsustainable. The, what they're telling me across my district, they can't handle the inflation, the grocery prices, the gas prices, utility prices, housing prices, increased interest rates. That's all a reflection of bad policy that we're extending and perpetuating. Uh, furthermore, they're concerned about the border and why they're wondering why do we continue to fund Biden and Mayorkas' border invasion by giving them billions of dollars more to continue to harm the American people. You talk about inflation, a box of cereal, a family size, can be about 10 bucks nowadays. This is, is this gonna pass the Senate? Uh, I, I don't know where it stands on the Senate, but I, I expect it'll pass both houses. The House is going to bring it up under suspension of the rules today. I suspect it will once again pass with predominantly Democrat votes. Think about that. We've got a Republican House majority, and all the major spending bills that we've passed in the in, in, over this last year have been passed with predominantly Democrat votes. I suspect that'll be the case again today in the House side. Yeah, and this is about the third time now that this Congress has punted these funding bills down the road here, and they're looking at a fourth. So, I mean, is, how does Congress break out of this cycle where we have to address funding and risking a shutdown month to month? What we ought to do right now is pass a, a year-long CR, which goes through uh, September 30, that would at least put in place the spending cuts and caps that were in place with the FRA from last summer that was passed into law. Uh, by the House, the Senate, and the White House president signed it. Uh, we cut about $100 billion beneath the deal that Biden and, and uh, excuse me, that Johnson and Schumer have negotiated. Uh, it would also eliminate earmarks, thousands of earmarks for members on both sides of the aisle that would cost tens of billions of dollars more. Uh, that's what we ought to do. We ought to attach to it border security uh, and not fund this government without securing our border. That's what we ought to do. Uh, I'm afraid that's not what's going to happen. But again, a government shutdown may not be ideal. But what's worse than a partial temporary government shutdown, where 85 percent of the government continues anyway, is to continue doing what we've been doing, funding this government without cutting spending, without securing our border. That is not good for the American people. Understood, Congressman. Let's shift gears here and talk about Senator Mitch McConnell stepping down as the GOP leader in the upper chamber. Who do you think is most likely to replace him? 
I'd like to see someone in the mode of Rick Scott, Senator Rick Scott, who had the courage to run against Mitch McConnell uh, uh, most recently. Uh, you know, I think this, the Republicans, conservatives in the Senate are looking to what we've done in the House. They realize change is needed, that we need to disrupt the, disrupt the status quo, the Washington swamp. You know, the founders didn't intend for, for members of Congress to grow old in the Senate. I don't think an 82-year-old minority leader is who the founders had in mind. He shouldn't have been there that long. It's, I'm glad that he's leaving. I wish that he would go ahead and step down immediately. Uh, but and because we, we need new, fresh and actual conservative leadership. And what's worse, essentially, Mitch McConnell has served as a Democrat minority leader. He's joined hands with Chuck Schumer against the House Republican conservatives. And he's been really a problem or an aid to the Democrats uh, during the past uh, couple of years on the spending side. So what about the three Johns? I mean, Whip John Thune, do you think he's a likely candidate? Well, I'm sure that those who are closest to the top of leadership will certainly attempt to do that. I hope that 25 conservative-leaning uh, Republicans in the Senate will instead pick a conservative leader, not the status quo. The status quo is failing the American people. That's how we got $34 trillion in national debt. That's how we have, a, what, a 17% approval rating for Congress. We don't need to keep doing what we've been doing. We need a change. We need someone, a conservative leader, someone along the lines of Rick Scott or Mike Lee or Rand Paul or Ron Johnson or Ted Cruz, someone like that. Yeah, we've seen a little bit of friction there between former President Trump and Senate leader Mitch McConnell. So we'll have to see what happens here. What are your priorities in Congress right now? At securing the border and cutting our spending. Our debt is unsustainable. We got a, we're paying a trillion dollars a year in interest on the debt now, about a $200 billion monthly deficit. It's snowballing so fast. The interest rates that have been raised to try to combat the inflation that Biden has caused is further exacerbating the problem. Our credit has been downgraded twice in the past year. This is unsustainable. The debt, the spending without, days of spending without consequence are over. And then furthermore, the border invasion. Uh, we cannot continue to allow just tens of thousands of people every day to invade our country, uh, many of them criminals uh, on the terrorist watch list, trafficking drugs, trafficking sex, trafficking children into the country. Irreparable harm is being done by this border invasion by this president. So I think those are the two greatest threats. Congressman Bob Good of Virginia, thank you for joining us this morning. Great to be with you. Thanks for having me. A Republican senator from Mississippi blocked quick passage of a bill yesterday that would have protected in vitro fertilization. The bill is in response to the Alabama Supreme Court's decision to declare embryos created through IVF as children. Democratic Senator Tammy Duckworth of Illinois introduced a bill that enshrines protections for IVF and for the doctors who perform the procedure. But Mississippi Republican Senator Cindy Hyde-Smith blocked the move. Hyde-Smith said she completely supports IVF treatments, but stated the bill was full of poison pills that would waive the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. The senator said it would also subject religious and pro-life organizations to crippling lawsuits. Alabama's court ruling has raised concerns that those involved in IVF could face prosecution for wrongful death. That's because embryos that are found to be non-viable are sometimes disposed of or used for research. Several Republican senators have recently signaled they believe legislation on IVF should be left at the state level, not the federal level. New York Democrat Tom Suozzi was sworn into the House on Wednesday night. He won a special election in New York's 3rd District to replace Republican George Santos. Suozzi previously represented the same district from 2017 to 2023 before it was won by Santos in a surprise swing. Santos was expelled from Congress last year and indicted on 23 counts for fraud. Earlier in February, Suozzi handily beat Republican Mozzie Pillup bringing the seat back under Democratic control.
Swazi's election means the GOP majority in the House becomes even smaller, just 219 to 213. And stay with us, New York City Mayor Eric Adams is looking to make some changes to the city's sanctuary policies after a string of illegal immigrant crimes. We hear from the field office director for ICE in New York for his take on the matter. Anti-Israel protesters disrupt an event organized by Jewish students at UC Berkeley, forcing an evacuation. How the guest speaker who served in Israel's military is responding to the incident. And home insurance is getting more expensive. Factors behind the price hike and tips on how to save money while ensuring you're covered for disasters. Stay tuned for that after the break. Welcome back. After a string of violent crimes from illegal immigrants, New York City Mayor Eric Adams is considering turning those accused of crimes over to ICE. That's right. I spoke to Ken Janello, the field office director for ICE in New York, and asked him about the mayor's decision to possibly begin deporting illegal immigrants. Our job is to keep the community safe and the uh, residents and citizens of New York City safe. So um, to hear that, um, you know, the New York City mayor might want to collaborate, um, I'm all for it. Um, I stated that, you know, I'm free anytime. And uh, I would welcome any type of collaboration with the mayor's office, as I've stated before, also in the, um, the press conferences, that at least with this administration, we've had some dialogue, as opposed to the prior administration in New York City, where we were kicked basically, you know, out of Rikers and there was no... Uh, communication. At least we're back at the table. Right. And on that note, because um, we, we heard about this illegal immigrant who allegedly killed a nursing student in Georgia. Um, he has been in the news a lot because he was arrested prior to that murder in New York, but then released with the changes that the mayor is proposing. Um, what do you think? Will it help in ending those illegal immigrants slipping through the cracks like this in the future? Well, I mean, this all goes back to the sanctuary policies that were, uh, you know, voted on and signed into law by the prior administration that basically stated you cannot cooperate with ICE at all. So by removing us from Rikers Island and then not honoring our detainers, basically what's happening is those that are being arrested are being released right back into the community where... Their recidivism rate has been, you know, proven to be high on these individuals. So we then have to then go out looking for them. And obviously, once they're released, you're behind the eight ball because um, they start to move. They can be transient. They can move from, you know, borough to borough, from state to state. And, you know, it just causes us that much more investigation that we have to try and find these individuals on top of the public safety issue, not only for the communities that they've been released back into, but also for my staff. I mean, we're now out and we have to try and find them if we're going to a residence or an appointment. Obviously, the criminals have the upper hand as my staff is seeking to arrest them at that time. So um, the sanctuary policies, unfortunately, um, aid this uh, type of behavior when this happens. Very interesting. And I actually want to, let, let's put this into perspective a little bit. Do you have a rough estimate of, let's say, how many removal proceedings you are processing in New York versus how many more are kind of stuck and unable to move on because of this kind of bureaucracy? 
Well, I don't have the exact amount of uh, people that are in proceedings here in New York City, but obviously if we're not being advised of individuals being released back into the community that have prior crimes or prior arrests, those are individuals that we have to track via our own databases. Uh, and then, like I said, unfortunately, we're behind the eight ball. But, you know, unfortunately, in New York, in the city, there's hundreds of people being arrested on a weekly basis. So we're trying to prioritize the most violent crimes in my agency and the most heinous crimes. And unfortunately, a lot of times, the only way we could find that out, since there's no collaboration with NYPD, is through the media. Can you imagine a law enforcement agency trying to find out information on criminals relying on the media? So, I mean, we use every possible law enforcement tool that's at our, um, you know, at our fingertips to try and locate these people. But, you know, unfortunately, once they have been released without contacting ICE, we then have to backtrack and try and figure out where they are. Right, and hard to imagine how difficult that would make things. So before I let you go, just quickly, what kind of change do you, would you like to see for a better cooperation between the NYPD and ICE? I mean, that's it. You hit the word right there. It's cooperation. That is the change that uh, we want in ICRO, you know, nationwide, but obviously spe specifically here in New York City because of the fact that um, we have these overarching priorities and we need to work together to keep the community safe. Mm. Thank you so much, Ken Janello. I appreciate your time this morning. Thank you. The 18-year-old son of Representative Lauren Bobert, Bobert was arrested in Colorado on Tuesday. Police say he's suspected of stealing identity documents and faces five felony charges. Police in Rifle, Colorado said Tyler J. Bobert was released from jail on Wednesday and is under investigation. In addition to the felony charges, he's facing more than 15 counts for misdemeanor and petty offenses. Lauren Bobert is running for re-election in November. Earlier this year, she made headlines when police became involved in an altercation between her and her ex-husband, Jason Bobert. Switching topics, pro-Palestinian protesters in UC Berkeley, California, disrupted an event hosted by Jewish student organizations on Monday night. The university said students were forced to evacuate as protesters broke through doors and a criminal investigation has begun. The event was a lecture by an Israeli Defense Force soldier, according to Berkeley student newspaper. Minutes before the event was to start, a crowd of around 200 protesters surrounded the building and demanded it be shut down. The protests were led by Bears for Palestine, an anti-Israel group. They reportedly smashed windows and doors before students inside were evacuated. The speaker, Ron Bar Yoshevat, told the Daily Wire the incident was an attack on free speech. He said the event had been rescheduled several times over safety concerns. He also criticized the university for shutting the event down instead of providing more security. Since the start of the Israel-Hamas war, college campuses in the U.S. have come under scrutiny over a rise in anti-Semitism. And something on the economy. In the last year, home insurance premiums have skyrocketed. In some cases, those monthly costs have risen by as much as 40%. What's causing the price hike and what can homeowners do to try and save money? Let's find out. When disaster strikes, home insurance is there to help cover some of the costs. Your home is one of your largest assets. 
and in the insurance industry, it's, it, it's wise and prudent to protect that asset. But the price of that protection is becoming more expensive. Home insurance broker Travis Hodges says he's seeing an average increase of 27% year over year. And in some cases, the cost of insuring your home can go even higher. We've heard as much as 40. So what's causing the price hike? Hodges says there are a few reasons. One changing weather patterns and events such as tornadoes and wildfires. Two, the cost of materials has gone up, so it costs more to fix any damage. Three, property values have risen. Let's look at those numbers for a moment. In January, the median home sale price was $379,100, according to the National Association of Realtors. That's 5.1% higher than January of last year, and it's the seventh month in a row home prices have gone up. Everything else has gone up. Insurance has just mirrored that and been proportionate. So what can you do to save money? If you're willing to increase your deductible by as much as $500, Hodges says you can save anywhere from 15 to 20% and shop around for different policies. We actually do that proactively for our clients. Every time there's a renewal, we've let them know what other options are out there. And remember, flood insurance is a separate plan. Up next, President Biden taking action to protect Americans' personal data. A new executive order seeks to prevent hostile nations like China from getting access to Americans' biometrics, finances, and more. DirecTV says its services are back up after a nationwide outage. What caused the disruption just days after AT&T's cell network went down? The details when we come back. Welcome back, everyone. And joining us now is NTD business host Don Ma to give us the latest updates from the tech and the business world. All right, Dan, what do you got today? All right, so uh, several items I think is worth uh, discussing today, and that is including a new executive uh, order from Biden yesterday. And as well, there seems to be complaints on Wendy's uh, new uh, surge pricing model, and as well as uh, Apple finally announcing that uh, it's going to reveal its own AI plans. Okay, so let me start off with the executive order. Uh, it's aimed at protecting Americans' data. Uh, that's like from countries uh, that are hostile to the United States, such as China and Russia as well. So these sensitive information includes uh, personal data on everything from biometrics and health records uh, to finances and geolocation. Uh, so this move allows the Department of Justice and other federal agencies to take steps to prevent the large-scale transfer of Americans' personal data to what the White House calls uh, countries of concern. So uh, specifically now, these, uh, this move targets commercial data brokers, and these are the companies that, that traffic personal data and may sell information to foreign adversaries. And bad actors can actually use this data to track Americans, uh, including 
uh, military service members and pry into their personal lives. Uh, so the stakes are uh, a bit high here, and this data can enable intrusive uh, surveillance, scams, blackmail, and, and other violations of privacy. So it's really important that uh, we're talking about this right Definitely now. Definitely a yeah. high-stake thing, and especially when it comes to adversaries like China, right? Um, but let's talk about that story from Wendy's that you talked about. We just talked about it yesterday, and, and uh, complaints are already coming in. Yeah, apparently it is because uh, it seems like surge pricing, uh, well, it's not sitting well with uh, consumers uh, who uh, go to Wendy's uh, because when it comes to paying for a burger, it seems like that may be the limit. Uh, now, consumers may fork out more for uh, a rush hour Uber ride, but uh, social media backlash this week to reports that Wendy's wanted to increase menu prices during its busiest hours showed a limit to where, when, and for what consumers uh, will trade more cash for convenience. And it looks like uh, Wendy's cheeseburger is not making the cut here. Uh, so dynamic pricing is not something new actually in the services industry, but it is uncommon uh, in a restaurant setting. And experts say that it's going to be hard to uh, change public attitudes towards dynamic pricing, especially in fast food restaurants. Yeah, done. That dynamic pricing, people will accept paying a little bit more for a flight right before Christmas than after, but a burger at lunchtime, it just doesn't seem to make the cut. What are Apple's AI plans? Yeah, so Apple announced yesterday, uh, T CEO Tim Cook said during the company's annual uh, shareholder meeting that Apple sees incredible breakthrough potential for generative AI, and they're currently investing heavily on that front. Mm -hmm. So uh, this is something that Cook uh, and what he says can unlock transformative opportunities for users when it comes to productivity problem solving and more. And Cook argues that AI currently is in a lot of its products already. Uh, so that's including behind the scenes work in uh, Apple's Macs and uh, other products, uh, which is powered by Apple Silicon and is an extraordinarily capable AI machine. That's what uh, Cook is arguing. And Apple's plans to disclose more about its plans uh, to put generative artificial intelligence uh, to use this year uh, will be announced further with more details uh, in the coming months. Uh, so right now, details are scarce, but relatively speaking, uh, Apple has been slower to roll out its AI products uh, compared to rivals like Microsoft and Google, which are already weaving them into several of their own products. Dan, right now, there have been a lot of service disruptions, Coinbase being one of them yesterday. Can you tell us about that? Okay, so in terms of that, uh, Coinbase Global said on Wednesday that all services on its website were restored. And, and earlier uh, in the day, an issue caused some users to see zero balance across their accounts. And the crypto exchange assured customers that it was seeing an improvement in their trading and their funds were safe. And now the outage came uh, after Bitcoin hit $60,000 on Wednesday for the first time in more than two years. Coinbase CEO Brian Armstrong said in a post on X that the crypto exchange was dealing with a large surge in traffic. Well, must have given everybody a good scare there. Thank you so much, Don Ma, host of NTD Business. Sure. Stay with us. Personal trauma turned into opportunity for healing. One woman's story of how she's using her passion to help others struggling with mental health after the break.
thanks for staying with us. A woman in Australia has found a way to turn personal trauma into something positive, helping others improve their mental health. She's doing it by training people in an activity called free diving. It involves swimming down as far as possible on one single breath, and it's becoming more and more popular. Over 600 feet from shore, these free divers are being trained to rescue someone who's passed out in the water. The lesson can be a matter of life or death. There's a number of inherent dangers. The biggest one is holding your breath too long until your oxygen levels drop too low. Tanya Douthwaite is a marine scientist who's also an adept free diver. She knows all too well the dangers associated with the activity. Douthwaite's life was struck by tragedy 13 years ago when her partner died. He went free diving with a scuba diver, um, with a whole bunch of them diving on a shipwreck. Um, I was somewhere else doing some snorkeling um, and he, he passed out. Um, as far as we were aware, he was found on the bottom um, and they brought him to the surface and he was not able to be resuscitated. She learned free diving to honor her partner's memory. And for almost 10 years, she's been training people to go as far as they can underwater in a safe manner. Along the way, she's realized how therapeutic freediving could be. So she's teaching the skill to others using a dual approach, dividing her training sessions into either focusing on the basics of freediving or its mental health aspects. Around about uh, five years ago, I started developing this idea of freediving therapy. Um, having had an experience post-traumatic stress disorder myself um, and finding that freediving was really quite therapeutic for myself. The water can be a welcome escape from the stresses of life on dry land. It's really hard for me to relax on land. Underwater, the, as soon as the water hits my face, I just start being relaxed. And for psychology experts, freediving has some mental health benefits. Helping the body to condition to those challenge states will mean that the body itself, the brain itself, will, less, will be less likely to go into some kind of fight or flight state. To complete the course, trainees must be able to hold their breath underwater for 90 seconds, swim down to 32 feet, and swim 82 feet horizontally in a pool. What an incredible sport. And yeah. I just I just watched The Deepest Breath not too long ago, the documentary, and I have such I have such respect for people that have the courage to engage in a sport like that. Yeah, need a lot of lung capacity and talk about just a total emotional reset going down into another world. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and on that note, we want to start the second part of our broadcast in just a minute, so stay tuned. There are real consequences to controlled media. And NTD's founders know them firsthand. Our freedom of thought is the price. This is the lesson that guides us in everything we do. So there's the tear gas there. We know the value of a free society. And we take seriously the responsibility to preserve it. We are NTD. Good morning, welcome to NTD. 
Good morning. Here are our top stories. President Biden and former President Trump both heading to the border cities in Texas today on the ground updates on the dueling visits. Congressional leaders reach a last minute deal to prevent a government shutdown ahead of a Friday deadline. The House and Senate both expected to vote on the measure soon. The Heritage Foundation has published its annual Index of Economic Freedom. It measures an individual's ability to make their own economic decisions without government. We speak to an expert to learn more. Hunter Biden testifies in a closed-door interview as part of the impeachment inquiry into President Biden. More on the First Son's private deposition and reactions from committee members. Over a million acres burned. Communities struggle as wildfires devastate the Texas panhandle. Will the weekend weather soothe the flames? Billions of cicadas are coming to the U.S. in a rare co-emergence. We speak to a professor of biology about what to expect from these noisy insects this year. This is NTD Good Morning. Live from our global headquarters, here are Evelyn Lee and Kevin Hogan. Welcome to NTD. Welcome everyone. Today is Thursday, February 29th, and we have the president heading to the border for the second time. Yes, during his presidency, right. And, you know, an NPR poll shows that only 29% of Americans agree with the way that he's handling immigration. Yeah, definitely a big issue. So today's top story, two presidents. The two presidents are scheduled to visit the U.S.-Mexico border in Texas today. President Biden will be in Brownsville, while former President Trump is expected in Eagle Pass. And NTD's Arian Pass star is in Eagle Pass now. Arian, what's the situation on the ground? Yeah, good morning, Kevin. That's right. We Good morning, Kevin. That's right. We're here in Eagle Pass, Texas, as you just said. The lights behind me, that's actually Mexico already. So we, we are very close to the border. Down there, that's Shelby Park, which you might have heard of. That's really where the, that's the park where the standoff, the showdown, if you will, between the Biden administration and the state of Texas took place in recent months. Now, over this shoulder, you can see that police is already here. They actually closed the street off last night. We could still go down there. Now they closed it off, which is a clear sign that they are preparing for former President Trump to be here today. Now, President Trump's and President Biden's visits, we're expecting them to have very contradicting narratives, actually. So let's start with President Trump. He's, of, he's of course, expected to actually blame President Biden for the immigration crisis and for the huge number of people coming into this country illegally. But President Biden, at the same time, he's also expected to blame former President Trump. And that's because Congress recently failed to pass a border security bill. And a lot of Democrats, including President Biden, they're blaming former President Trump for that. They say that, you know, Republican lawmakers didn't pass this bill because they were influenced by former President Trump. So they're kind of, we're expecting them to blame each other a little bit here today at the border. But of course, we don't know for sure what's going to happen. We'll, of course, keep you updated throughout the day, Kevin. Well, that's good that you'll stay with us here, Arian, multiple violent crimes allegedly involving illegal immigrants are making headlines this week. There's, of course, the killing of a nursing student in Georgia, also reports of an illegal immigrant raping a 14-year-old girl and more. How does that affect Trump's visit? 
Yeah, that's huge, of course. And Kevin, you know, just the fact that Trump and Biden are visiting the border on the same day, that really goes to show how big this issue is, the immigration crisis, how much Americans think about this right now. You know, two presidents, a former president and a current one on the border on the same day really tells us a lot. And violent crime is affecting Americans across the nation in a lot of different cities, but especially down here. Just take a look at what one resident, we talked to a lot of people down here last night, take a look at what one resident told me how this fear of crime is affecting him and his family. Watch. I had to build a big, big uh, wall behind my house because they, they used to walk through my, my land, you know. Especially when your kids are playing out the, outside the house, you know, you don't know who's going to come by, who's going to walk through, you know. Very serious there. So a new Gallup poll found... Yes, so yeah, you were saying, Arian? No, please go ahead, Kevin. Yeah, so a new Gallup poll found immigration to be the top issue for voters for the first time since 2019. What are the residents' thoughts on this? Is the border issue something that's constantly on people's minds? You know, that's what you would think, right? We are in Eagle Pass, really the center of the immigration crisis. In the last months, whenever we thought of the immigration crisis, whenever we heard something, we heard the name Eagle Pass. So a lot of people might think that the people down here, that's the only thing that's on their mind, right? The immigration crisis, the people coming in. But you might be surprised that I would say only half of the people here are actually very, very worried about the immigration crisis. The other half, not so much. That might be for a lot of reasons. You know, the immigrants coming in here, they're being processed quick. They're being sent to New York. They're being sent to Chicago and a lot of different cities. So I think a lot of the residents down here might not actually see what's going on. Um, but... Now, what's very interesting, Kevin, is that there is one thing that is on everybody's mind. And I want to show you what residents also told me last night, that down here, even here in Eagle Pass, the center of the immigration crisis, there is one thing that people, I think everybody, cares about the most, just like in the rest of America. Take a look at what they told me, what they think the biggest issue is down here. The economy sucks right now. Excuse my language. It's hard. Prices keep going up, but our income... Our race, it stays the same. When Trump was in office, the economy was a little bit more more better and, you know, the inflation was non-existent. Shut down the borders and start drilling and that's what we need. And the drilling, would that be good for the economy, you think? Yeah, because yeah, we got Carrizo here that we used to have a bunch of uh, drilling going on since, that, since uh, Biden, everything started going slow. Well, thank you so much for your insight, Arian Pastar. Thank you. And on Capitol Hill, Democratic and Republican leaders in Congress have reached a deal to potentially avoid a government shutdown this weekend. This could bring relief, at least temporarily, for several federal departments. Congressional leaders struck a deal Wednesday to advance some of the bills funding the federal government, as well as a stopgap measure to prevent partial government shutdown. The deadline was Friday night. The pact was announced in a joint statement by House Speaker Mike Johnson, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, House Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries, and other top lawmakers. It would extend government funding and allow the federal government to operate normally until lawmakers finish debating funding for the rest of the year. This is uh, for the process to allow us to honor the rules and not jam people with a large piece of legislation they haven't had a chance to review. Johnson confirmed the lower chamber will take a vote Thursday on the stopgap measure to avert a partial shutdown until March 8th. 
The deal would put six of the 12 funding bills on a path to passage by March 8th, with the remainder by March 22nd. Roughly 20% of federal government funding hangs in the balance. Departments impacted would include transportation, housing, veteran affairs, agriculture and energy. Almost two months ago, Johnson and Schumer agreed on a close to $1.6 trillion spending budget, but House Republicans rejected the deal and demanded cuts. Republicans' razor-thin majority thinned further, with Democrat Tom Swayze's election to the seat left vacant by George Santos. In the Senate, both parties' leaders will now explain the new deal to their rank and file, with the aim of convincing enough of them to back the arrangement. An Illinois judge barred former President Trump from the state's GOP primary ballot yesterday over his alleged role in the January 6th Capitol breach. Cook County Circuit Judge Tracy Porter sided with Illinois voters who argued Trump should be disqualified from the state's primary and the state's November 5th general election ballot. That was over her interpretation of the insurrection clause of the Constitution's 14th Amendment. The judge delayed her ruling from taking effect due to expected appeal. The Trump campaign stated it would quickly appeal what it called an unconstitutional ruling. The final outcome of the case will most likely be decided by the U.S. Supreme Court. The high court heard arguments on the former president's ballot eligibility earlier this month. The group Free Speech for People spearheaded the Illinois disqualification effort. Illinois is now the third state to remove Trump from its primary ballot after Colorado and Maine. Both of those decisions are also on hold while Trump appeals. Earlier I spoke to Paul Kaminar, the lead counsel at the National Legal and Policy Center. I asked him if a circuit court judge has the legal authority to rule that Trump cannot appear on the ballot in Illinois. Well, she has the authority to issue the ruling, uh, but the question is whether that ruling is uh, illegal or constitutional, and it's clearly it's not. Uh, she's just trying to jump on board. She's a liberal Democratic judge. You know, after all, she's from uh, Cook County, Chicago, where their motto is vote early and often. Uh, so I'm not surprised that she tried to jump on the bandwagon here, knowing full well that the Supreme Court is going to rule shortly. And the uh, hearing went, I was there at the Supreme Court uh, hearing, and it went very well for Trump. So, uh, you know, this is really going to go down the tubes along with Maine and Colorado. Yeah, and a lot of that actual decision came down to whether or not the court actually had jurisdiction over the matter to begin with. So what's likely to happen here over the Illinois ballot? Will Trump appeal to an appellate court in Illinois, or will just a Supreme Court decision ultimately take precedent over this? Well, uh, it's being appealed to the uh, appellate court in Illinois, but uh, uh, the judge is basically putting this on hold. But uh, she also ordered that, uh, as you said, ballots have been cast. And she said if there's any uh, votes for Trump, they have to be suppressed, is her word. Oh, so you're suppressing the vote here? So it's clear what's going on here. So uh, this is being appealed, and I have no doubt that her decision will be reversed. The Heritage Foundation just published its annual Index of Economic Freedom. It essentially measures the ability of individuals to make their own economic decisions without the government, individuals and companies. So the U.S. has reached its lowest level in 30 years and is now ranked 25th. Joining me now to discuss this is Joel Griffith. He's a research fellow on economic policy studies at the Heritage Foundation. Good morning, Joel. It's really good to speak to you today. And first... Um, Let's, let's, for some context, could you please explain why economic freedom is important for a nation? Well, economic freedom is essential to all of us achieving prosperity. 
we know from hundreds of years now of past data that the more people are empowered to make decisions for themselves, to buy and sell as they please, to invest their capital, to enforce their contracts in court, we know that those countries achieve more prosperity because people have the security to save and invest and to do what they will with their own economic resources. And as you mentioned, the United States has actually been falling in recent years. This is the fifth year in a row that our economic freedom score has declined. We're not even in the top 10 or the top 20 worldwide anymore. We're number 25. And I think all of us are beginning to feel the impacts of that because for the first time in, a gen in two generations, we've actually seen a multi-year decline in real family income. And that is directly tied to several of the factors that we cover in our annual index of economic freedom. Now, that being said, what are the underlying reasons here? or What is the biggest driver, would you say, in the decline uh, in this index and U.S.'s ranking this year or in the last five? Well, the biggest, uh, there's three big declines over the past few years now in the ranking of the United States. One of the most important is the physical health of the nation. We know that we now have a deficit of more than $34 trillion. If you think about that, for a second, that's more than $300,000 per family of four in government debt that has been racked up. And we are beginning to pay inordinate amounts of interest every year on that debt. We're spending as much on the interest on our national debt as we spend in our entire military. And even if you're not one of the 50% of people that actually pay taxes in this country, even those who aren't paying taxes feel the result of that because a lot of the money that would have been invested into private enterprise is now going to service the national debt. And so really that's a twofold problem, both the fiscal side and the government spending side. They go hand in hand. That's a big part of the reason why our nation has fallen in the rankings. But another important reason why we've fallen in the rankings is our trade freedom. Our trade freedom during the final year of President Trump's administration plummeted to the worst in a generation, and it actually continued its decline on trade freedom during the Biden administration, think of all the tariffs that were put in place over the past few years, mm. including tariffs on allies. We put in tariffs on Canadian lumber, for instance. Well, that operates as a tax on businesses and a tax on consumers. And that's another reason why we have dropped in the rankings. So I really want to talk about this because you mentioned the U.S.'s fiscal health and the score for the U.S.'s fiscal health in that index is zero. And that's the same score as for North Korea and Cuba. So could you please help us wrap our heads around this? What makes um, the U.S.'s fiscal health comparable to those countries? And yes, and I think we should be really clear. There are many factors that go into the ranking. And so despite the fact that our fiscal health is ranked as repressed, which is very similar to the authoritarian regimes that you mentioned, Thankfully, we live in a country where many other factors are some of the best in the world, such as the integrity of our court system, such as the ability to enforce contracts and to defend private property rights and to invest our capital freely. In all of those areas, we rank quite high, but exactly right. On the fiscal side, we are in dire straits. And think about what we're spending every year on our, ta on our government spending, $6 trillion plus a year in spending, we're spending $80,000 per family of four, and that is dramatically higher than where we were just prior to the pandemic. 
So that physical health is is key because right. we've made so many promises now into the future on entitlements. We've overcommitted ourselves and we know that going forward now, we're going to have very difficult decisions to make. And yes. both Republicans and Democrats need to take note that if we don't address these long term cost drivers, it's only going to become worse. There's That's only right. three the ways to get out of that problem in the future. Raising taxes dramatically, which, of course, is very painful, cutting spending dramatically in the future or what I think will happen would be they would rely, the politicians would rely on our Federal Reserve to print trillions of dollars more to finance government right. operations. I totally None hear you there, Joel. And the economy is that certainly one of the biggest, the biggest issue right now in the, uh, this election year. I'm sorry to cut you short here, but we're really running out of time. I would have loved to hear more. Thank you so much, Joel Griffith. Thank you. And we're heading to break. Hunter Biden testifies behind closed doors as part of the impeachment inquiry into President Biden. We have takeaways on the private hearing and reactions from committee members. And over a million acres burned. Communities struggle as wildfires devastate the Texas panhandle. What officials say about containing the blaze in a moment. Thank you for staying with us. Hunter Biden appeared for a closed door interview with lawmakers on Capitol Hill yesterday in the impeachment probe into President Biden. House Oversight Chair James Comer says the next phase will be a public hearing and that he plans to issue a final report. NTD's Jeremy Sandberg has reactions to the private hearing. Hunter Biden testified Wednesday his father has never had any involvement or any direct or indirect financial interest in various business ventures during his 50-year career, calling the investigation a baseless and destructive political charade. He accused Republicans in his opening statement of hunting him for over a year in a, quote, partisan political pursuit of my dad. Hunter Biden's attorney, Abby Lowell, said the Republican majority ended the day where they started and accused Republicans of spending more time focusing on his client's addiction than anything related to an impeachment probe. They have produced no evidence that would do anything to support the notion that there was any financial transactions that involved Hunter with his father, period. House Oversight member Pat Fallon shared his take on the hearing with NTD. He said Jim Biden gave his dad $200,000 as a loan repayment. Okay, then why hasn't your father simply produced the original check or wire that he sent to, to, to his brother? He hasn't. I don't think it ever existed. But it, it, it's things like that. So I think the natural progression will be a public hearing. Good morning. House Oversight Chair James Comer said the deposition was great and backed several bits of evidence. Our committees have unearthed substantial evidence of President Biden and his family's corruption. The Bidens created 20 shell companies, most of which were created when Joe Biden was vice president. The chairman says an investigation into President Biden will continue as long as new information keeps coming in. Comer says he plans to issue a final report with the impeachment inquiry moving into its next phase, a public hearing with Hunter Biden. He says a transcript of Wednesday's closed-door interview should be out in a few days. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. Wildfires are spreading across the Texas panhandle, charring more than a million acres. Authorities say the Smokehouse Creek fire alone has reached already scored more, scorched more than 850,000 acres since it ignited Monday afternoon. NTD's Daniel Monahan has more on what is now the second largest fire in the Lone Star State has ever seen. Some residents have been forced to evacuate. At least one death is confirmed in Hutchinson County, Texas. 
83-year-old grandmother Joyce Blankenship from the town of Stinnett. Drone footage shows Stinnett with its neighborhoods ravaged by the fires. Richard Murray's house burned to the ground. We basically have lost everything. This is the only pair of pants I've got. The shirt, that's it. This building in the town of Canadian was completely destroyed by the wildfires. People and even some of their animals took shelter in a church in Fritch, Texas. Children's pastor Courtney Kirksey says they had over 50 people come through. But we had animals here too. We had goats and horses and rabbits really? and cats and dogs. Wow. <laughs> here a vehicle drives through the raging wildfire, soon overtaken by smoke as the flames get too close for comfort. Drone footage shows burned grassland and smoke in Roberts County, north of Pampa. Chief of the Texas Division of Emergency Management, Nim Kidd, says adverse weather on Friday and the weekend could make containing the fires a challenge. I don't want the community there to feel a false sense of security that all of these fires will not grow anymore. This is still a very dynamic situation. The largest fire recorded in Texas history was the 2006 East Amarillo Complex fire, which burned about 1,400 square miles and resulted in 13 deaths. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. Hope everybody stays safe out there, but nature is making more news. Cicadas, billions of them. Yes, that's right. A rare co-emergence of two broods of these noisy insects is coming to the U.S. this year. Yeah, I wanted to learn more about this and how it affects you with all these cicadas coming. So I spoke with Jean Kritsky, a professor emeritus of biology at Mount St. Joseph University. Take a look. We're going to be expecting to see two different broods of periodical cicadas, a 17-year brood and a 13-year brood. The 13-year brood is gonna occur through uh, so southern Illinois, most of Missouri, and make a swath down through northern Arkansas, northern Louisiana, and then across northern uh, uh, Mississippi, Alabama, central to northern Georgia, up into western South Carolina, and uh, a, a stretch through North Carolina, ending, ending in the furthest south county of Maryland. And then brood 13, which is a 17-year cicada, uh, will be occurring in northern Illinois, southern Wisconsin, northeastern Iowa, and northwestern Indiana. For anybody who's heard these broods, they'll know that that noise can be a little bit of a nuisance to people who are living in those suburban areas. So where are these two broods likely to be at the same place? Well, the, the overlap zone is extremely narrow. It's going to be in central Illinois. Uh, we have some evidence that they occur in the same area, but we don't have the evidence that they actually occurred simultaneously. And that does not necessarily mean that that area is going to be louder than any place else. Uh, deforestation caused by, for agriculture, uh, urban development has reduced uh, the cicada distribution, so they're a lot more patchier than they were a century ago. But uh, uh, people in, uh, in the suburbs of Chicago, for example, where Brood 13 is emerging, they're going to be hearing cicadas screaming at up to 96 decibels. Wow. That is really alarming, and this is such a rare occurrence. The next one is expected to happen in 2037. What, what opportunity does this provide entomologists for studying these? Well, first of all, we, uh, uh, these broods do come out on their regular 17 to 13 year cycles, but this is the time they overlap, and the last time that happened was 1803. And uh, uh, even though there are 12 17 year broods and three 13 year broods, they overlap often, but not more than maybe 30 times every 200, two centuries or so. And, uh, 
so this gives us an opportunity to see where, in areas where they may overlap, uh, are they interbreeding? <clears throat> Excuse me. And uh, uh, what's the interaction between the two? In the past, when we've had two broods emerge at the same time and not in the same place, the 13-year brood emerged a little earlier than the 17-year brood. So there was a, there could have been an, a time overlap, but there wasn't a geographic overlap in that case. Well, this is a fascinating update from Eugene Kritsky, Professor Emeritus of Biology at Mount St. Joseph University. Thank you. Thank you. Over 90 decibels, that's about as loud as a lawnmower. Right, wow, they'll be screaming from the top of their lungs. But a bit of good news, um, cicadas apparently don't destroy crops, so we right. got that going for us. All right, we're wrapping up right here. We hope to see you tomorrow. Thank you so much for watching. I'm Evelyn Lee. And I'm Kevin Hogan.